I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. Before I get to the first topic today, I uh, wanted to remind you that you can text us and get all the good little updates on what's going on with the show and when we come out with new episodes, when we go live. You can text us at 203-646-5159. I'll get your messages right here. Ask us questions, leave comments, and and you know stay, stay apprised of uh, what's going on with the show. So the big topic is that Jeff Bezos is officially leaving Amazon and he's written his annual, his, his last annual letter. In every annual letter, he also includes the, his original letter from 1997. And that's all the way at the bottom of the letter. There's a couple interesting things in this letter that I wanted to, to dig into. He includes a letter that someone else, you know, an, an early shareholder had written to him, thanking him for all the value he's created. You know, I think that's one of the big one of the big points of emphasis, there's kind of maybe three points of emphasis. One of the big ones is, here is the value that Amazon is creating. And he says, if you're a company and you're not creating value for your constituents, well, then you're not going to be around for long. And so he goes on to break down how he thinks about that value, right? Create more than you consume is, is how he kind of titles the section. There's a couple bits in here that I think it would be interesting to go deeper into. So he says, yeah, for shareholders, we made $21 billion in net income in 2020. For employees, you know, we paid out, you know, $91 billion. So, you know, we, we paid them that kind of compensation. He does come back to the employee concept and says they have a lot more work to do on that front. We're going to get to that in a second. Then he talks about third-party sellers. We have an internal team, and they estimate that in 2020, third-party seller profits from selling on Amazon were between 25 and 39 billion. And to be conservative, he says, "I'll just assume 25 billion," and then he adds up all these things later on in the letter. So let's just double-click on that piece of it, right? 25 billion dollars. He says that is third-party seller profits from selling on Amazon. I don't know. Does that mean? their net income or does that mean gross margin not clear this is literally all he says about it to reference it but there is some other information there's a a, a really good market kind of 2020 year in review marketplace report from marketplace pulse uh, we love this site and one of the things they do is they break down the estimated share of amazon gmv by third-party sellers so in Bezos's letter two years ago, 2019, looking back at 2018, he said that there was a 56-44 split, right? Third-party sellers accounted for 56% of the GMV on Amazon globally. This site estimates it's, it's slightly above 60%, call it 61-62% in 2020. They also estimate that, that third-party sellers accounted for $295 billion dollars in 2020, right? So let's go back to that 25 to 39 billion dollar number. Um, if you're if you're doing it off of 300 billion dollars, you know, ba- basically what he's getting at is that they're making about 10 percent profit 
off of what they sell on Amazon, right? They being the third-party sellers. It's kind of hard to figure out what they actually mean by that number. I can tell you this much. If you, if you look at the net profit margin, net income margin uh, from third-party sellers and, and distributors that I know very well, it is way less than 10%, right? You're talking maybe 3% net income margin. So I think the 25 to $39 billion, maybe if that's talking about gross margin, that would be more accurate. But if it's talking about net profit margin, definitely not accurate. When you just look at all the costs that it takes to really run this business, net, net. Gross margin is probably what he is referring to, which is a very different story, frankly. So he says, yes, you know, we, we create 25 to $39 billion in, in value for our third-party sellers. So he talks about this union case, which is in Bessemer. So does your chair, that's him, refers to himself as your chair. Does your chair take comfort in the outcome of the recent union vote in Bessemer? No, he doesn't. I think we need to do a better job for our employees. Uh, While the voting results were lopsided and our direct relationship with employees is strong, it's clear to me that we need a better vision for how we create value for employees, a vision for their success. So if you're not really sure what that means, when he says the voting results were lopsided, that's in the affirmative, right? So they they actually voted to um, not go through with a union. Here is what happened here. This is in Bessemer, Alabama, uh, just in the past few weeks here. And just over half of the 5,800 eligible workers cast valid ballots. So 738 voted to unionize. And more, more than twice that number, about 1,800 voted against unionization. When Jeff is saying the vote was lopsided, it was lopsided to not go through with unionizing, right? This is a, one of their uh, you know, warehouses and distribution centers here in Alabama. I mean, if the vote had gone through, they would have closed down the, the distribution center. They wouldn't have allowed it to unionize. Same thing Walmart does, same thing, you know, a lot of these companies do. Um, Instacart did it where they had a store unionized and they shut down the whole operations at, at one or two stores to, to, to just root out the union altogether and not allow it to persist. So he subtly, you know, recognizes here that it was lopsided in Amazon's direction to not unionize. So he talks about Employee value talks about third-party seller value very vaguely, and I would say is overinflating the numbers. Either he's talking about gross margin, but he's calling it profit, um, or he's talking about the seller's gross profit, and it's highly inflated. I'm going to assume it's the former. It's the gross margin, uh, which, from a gross margin standpoint, <laughs> it's not that much gross margin. Many distributors have between, you know, call it 20 to 25% uh, cost. And so if they've got no more than 30% margin, right? And if they've got 25% cost uh, after COGS are taken out, then they've got a few points of gross profit left over. Um, so <laughs> if... If you're talking about uh, you know, 25% gross margin versus, let's say, 10% gross margin, 
there is value to third-party sellers, but <laughs> I don't know. It just calculated very weird. And, and I'm not really sure the point he's trying to get across on that pr- front. He kind of skates real lightly across the value to third-party sellers, even though they compete so much with third-party sellers. And we've talked about that myriad of times on the show. Anyway, the last one bit went in his calculation, which I thought was pretty interesting here, is how he calculates the value for the customers. Customers complete 28% of Amazon purchases in three minutes or less, and half of all purchases are finished in less than 15 minutes. Compare that to the typical shopping trip to a physical store. Research research suggests that the typical physical store trip takes about an hour. You assume that a typical Amazon purchase takes 15 minutes and it saves you a couple trips to a physical store a week. That's more than 75 hours a year saved. That's important. <laughs> what? Am- Amazon's the only place you can you can buy stuff online from. His comparison is not against Walmart um, or or eBay or Etsy or you know Macy's or Farfetch or his comparison is against the physical store, and that's what he is running his uh, cost value analysis against. It just seems really dated, this example. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to bash the guy because he's brilliant and he's literally the richest guy in the world. Well, it oscillates between him and Elon. It uh, depends on, on on where the share price falls. But um, let's just say he's the richest guy in the world. The guy has built an amazing business, the monopoly of all monopolies. And that's to his credit. But I don't know, this letter for the last letter, the letter's not, you know, no, letter's kind of just leaving a little bit more to be desired. Let's put it that way. So this is a weird analogy on the customer value. The numbers are wonky on the third-party seller value. And then the employee stuff just goes down a pretty crazy rabbit hole. So talks about all the good things they do for employees. This one did not get some good press. Employees are able to take informal breaks throughout their shifts to stretch, get water, use the restroom, or talk to a manager. That (laughs) is what makes Amazon's work environment so good. Um, All without, you can do all of those things. And guess what? It doesn't impact their performance. These informal work breaks are in addition to, wait for it, the 30-minute lunch break they get and the 30-minute break they, and another 30-minute flex break they get. Wow. Put that on a pamphlet and ship it because everyone wants to come work at Amazon right now. Be like, what? I mean, I know the guy proofreads this letter, but, you know, when you're, and you're proofreading and you say, mm, yeah, I don't know how this one's going to play. That question should have come up on this one. It just, it's like the details. I don't understand what these details are really helping his story, right? So anyway, what he does say is that they do have a lot left to be desired on the employees and in his upcoming role as executive chair 
he's going to focus his his inventor spirit on you know new initiatives to help out employees and that they want to be they are now making it a goal to be earth's best employer and earth's safest place to work so um that's one of the big takeaways there and then he talks about climate and then boom 1997 uh, letter but let's just you know these numbers are big right i mean I want to come back to these for a second. Look at this. When he actually disclosed that split 56-44 back for the 2018 numbers, it was $160 billion in third-party seller volume. That's up to 295 right? Look at this scale. Almost doubling in two years. Now, he's got the COVID bump in here, which helped out a lot. But still, I mean, even before that, they had... A 25% estimated, this is estimated, 25% year-over-year growth in the third-party sales volume. It's, it's massive. It's massive. The other thing, which also kind of comes out around the same time of this, is that on April 8th, Amazon removed the customer details from the last report. So you can see here just this general trend that... You know, when platforms get to monopoly scale, who do they take advantage of? It's not the consumer, it's the producer, it's the third party sellers, right? They just are, you know, they're they're bragging like a 10 to 13% gross margin is really good. Look at all the value we're creating for you, third party sellers. Like, look at how much meat is still on that bone. Let me tell you, that's not a meaty bone. Okay, those are razor thin margins because if that is gross margin, there's still overhead if you're a third party seller, right? You still have a lot of other overhead just to operate your business, right? So it's it's insanely thin in terms of what that net profit margin, that net income margin is for these third party sellers. And then they just keep, you know, taking a pound of flesh. Okay, yeah, we were going to give you customer information. Great. Yeah, no, not anymore. And you just can't do anything. The only way they're able to do this is because they have so much power and they have such strong scale. Who has more power and more scale than a tech monopoly? Well, totalitarian governments, that is. They're the ultimate monopoly of monopolies. So let's close on this note. We've talked about, you know, how much does it cost to speak out against the CCP? You know, what, 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 ha- what, what's, what's the, what is the, what's the pound of flesh the CCP takes or a totalitarian government takes when you say some, something that it's not even not nice. It's just like when you slightly critique them, which is what Jack Ma did back in October of 2020. How much, how big is that pound of flesh? Where apparently we have found out that pound of flesh is $2.8 billion, which Alibaba has gracefully accepted. They have said, thank you, President Xi. We will gladly pay this. Just please let us get back into your good graces. Ever since that fateful conference where Jack Ma somewhat slighted the financial regulators, they have since canceled the Ant Financial IPO. No one's even talking about the Ant Financial IPO anymore. Jack Ma disappeared for a month, probably for some, you know, special reconditioning and, and kind of, you know, uh, some, some serious conversations. And they have now had um, 
renewed antitrust pressure. Uh, their different acquisitions, current holdings, potential acquisitions have come under renewed scrutiny, not just for Alibaba, but all the tech monopolies. Uh, we've, we've covered that on the show, how the Chinese government is launching kind of renewed antitrust efforts and scrutiny, not just into Ant Financial, but into Alibaba. And now they've got a $2.8 billion fine. Joe Tsai, who's the executive vice chairman, said, we're happy to get the matter behind us. It's not behind them. But the tendency is that regulators will be keen to look at some of the areas where you might have unfair competition. The company added it was not aware of any further anti-monopoly investigations by Chinese regulators, though it signaled that Alibaba and its competitors would remain under review in China over mergers and acquisitions. Look at this one. The main issue for regulators was that Alibaba restricted merchants, producers, third-party sellers from doing business or running promotions on rival platforms. The company said it would lower... It would introduce measures to lower entry barriers and business costs faced by merchants on e-commerce platforms. Let me end it on this note. I talk a lot about the CCP. I talk a lot about totalitarian governments and how they're not okay. The Chinese are brilliant. Make no qualms about it. They are farther ahead of the United States in terms of platform innovation, without a doubt. They're years ahead of us. And we've talked about this multiple times on the show. They're years ahead of us in like communication platforms, right? Like what happened on WhatsApp they were doing years prior on um, WeChat. I mean, what they're doing with financial services platforms, years ahead of what's going on in the United States. But they're, what they're doing in many, you know, in, in B2B marketplaces, years ahead of B2B marketplaces in the United States. So they are extremely smart. And these regulators, they get it. Now, the difference is that, you know, they get it and then they can do whatever they want, basically, especially because Jack Ma said some, you know, things that they didn't like. But the Chinese people and the companies in China are terribly innovative, are ahead of the United States in many ways. The problem is that by helping out Chinese companies, you're actually helping out the Chinese Communist Party. And, you know, that's uh, <laughs> there's a lot of bad things that come along with that. So not in any way to slight the innovation and the smarts and, and, and the kind of platform expertise uh, that you see in the, the Chinese people, which is, you know, off the charts. So, yeah, you know, they get it. Do the U.S. regulators get it? No, they don't get it. And I, and, I, and I don't think we can, we can place much hope in the U.S. regulators figuring it out. So what does that mean? We're still going to have modern monopolies. We're still going to have winner-take-all dynamics. And the U.S. government isn't going to do anything about it. And it's up to private enterprise to figure out its own path. That's it for us today on Winner-Take-All. Thank you very much for joining us. Talk to you soon.